0: Um, you heard the uh, deacon reading his favourite gospel there for the year. He looks, looks forward to that every year, all those names. Today uh, we have um, Dr Daniel McInnes as our preacher. Thank you, Daniel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Family is often messy and complicated things, as many of us will be reminded as we meet together and celebrate Christmas in the next few days. We all have those few family members who have done scandalous things or are just plain embarrassing. For example, I have a friend with two uncles in their 80s who have been fighting over a pocket knife for over 60 years. Another one, of his got, another one of his uncles got divorced and was told by his father, that is my friend's grandfather, to leave the country because of the scandal. He moved to the United States, became an undertaker, has been living there under a different name for around 30 years. The same grandfather used to drive an unregistered truck in Bendigo and carry around a pistol that he found. I don't know how he found a pistol. Maybe they were just lying around more in those days. Um, He used to tell my friend's mother that if she saw the cops, she should get down just in case they had to shoot their way out. Did I mention that all the people that I've just mentioned above were actually pastors of churches at some time or another? (laughs) Another one of his relatives who doesn't know much about computers gets on a video call after a few drinks, thinks the mouse is a microphone, and starts talking into it. We all have relatives like these, or maybe just my friend has relatives like these, I don't know. In any case, it's comforting to know that Jesus' family history, as described by Matthew in today's Gospel reading, has its fair share of scandals and is an embarrassment as well. The Old Testament, as it has often been noted, does not shy away from the very human failings of many of the people, even the most godly among those described. As we read through the genealogy of Christ, we're reminded that the history of Israel is one of repeated falling into idolatry, going into exile and subsequent restoration, which mostly concerns the many generations of the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. So it's not surprising that Matthew begins his gospel with the family tree of Jesus Christ. He does this to show that he had the right heritage to become the Messiah, the anointed one in whom all God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. So Matthew traces the Lord's ancestry back to Abraham through David, the great king, who was viewed as a model for the Messiah. Through all the generations up to Joseph, to whom the Virgin Mary was betrothed when she became the Theotokos, the one who carried the eternal son of God in her womb and gave birth to him in a cave. Jesus didn't come from from the most righteous and upstanding family, from one above suspicion or embarrassment of any kind. What really sticks out in Matthew's genealogy is the unexpected presence of women in what is conventionally a listing of fathers and sons. We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. They stick out very clearly in in the genealogy. In addition to being women, they were involved in some scandalous relations with Jewish men. Tamar dressed as a prostitute and gave birth to the children of, to the children of her father in law. Rahab, who hid the Hebrew spies in her home in Jericho, was a prostitute. Ruth was King David's great grandmother and a Moabite woman. And if you know the story, you know that there was an incident where she goes to Boab on the threshing floor, and that's rather ambiguous. We don't, some people, it's a bit ambiguous. We don't quite know what that means, or there's some controversy around what that means. The Old Testament repeatedly warned Jewish men not to marry Gentile women. That was a very common thing. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, or at least had her, had her husband basically murdered through sending him to the front lines until he was killed. The anci- an ancient commentary by Severus says about the reason why these scandalous relations are included in Matthew's genealogy is that Christ therefore took upon himself a blood relationship to that nature which, which fornicated, in order to purify it. He took on that very nature that was sick in order to heal it. He took on that nature which fell in order to lift it up. All this occurred in a charitable, beneficial manner, wholly appropriate to God. So that's one way of looking at it. But of course, and of course it's true, but we can look at it a bit more deeply and we can see more in this geology, and particularly in the lives of these women, than just that. So... In particular, what I want to do is see how these women actually prefigure Mary, theotokos. Okay. Regarding Tamar, it's clear from the story that an injustice has actually been done to her and to her first husband, Ur, er, who died. If you know the story, um, Judah has three sons. He eventually has three sons. Um, Tamar marries the first son, but he dies before they can have children. Then through Leverite marriage, which means that the second son would, the the wife of the first one would be given to the second son in order to raise up children for the first son so that the lineage would continue for the first son and the inheritance would also continue in that line. So that was the idea. So what happened was the first son died without children. So she was given to the second son who wouldn't give her children and then he died. And then finally, Judas says, Well, there's something wrong with this girl. I'm not giving her to my third son in case he dies as well. So an injustice has been done here, actually. Um, so if we look at it in that way, the circumstances of what she does is slightly different. All right, so um, she would have been left a widow and childless. As Judah died, she would have been left a widow and childless, and in those days, not like today where we have Centrelink, being widow, a widow and childless, was a devastating thing. So um, in tricking Judah into giving her children, Tamar was the means by which justice was restored. Justice in this case means things being put in their right place, being restored to their right way, the way things should be. And the kingly line of Judah was continued. In fact, Judah himself declares her more righteous than he is because she did something that he should have done. We can see Tamar as a type of Mary in that when the earthly line of the kings of Judah had failed, Mary bears the only son of God, the father of the eternal king, the father and to be the eternal king and gain his inheritance and begin a new line, which is us, the race of Christian people. Just as Tamar was at first accused of fornication and later justified, Mary so also was thought to have fornicated when she became pregnant and was justified when the angel came to Joseph and said, No, this is by the Holy Spirit. With Rahab, we see a different picture. She's a Gentile and a prostitute. But she's heard of the great acts of God in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and believes that he is the God most high. In hiding the spies and showing them hospitality, she puts herself at great risk and shows greater faith in in the God of Israel than most of the people of Israel actually have. If you read the stories of the people of Israel, you know that they are not a very faithful bunch in general. She actually shows more faith than most of the people of Israel in doing what she does. As such a woman of faith, she becomes a member of the people of Israel and the mother of Boaz, who is seen as a type of Christ. Likewise, Mary shows extraordinary faith in God and puts herself at great risk when she responds to the angel Gabriel, telling her that she will bear a child by the Holy Spirit. As for Ruth, though she herself is widowed, she shows intense loyalty and kindness to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Um, and also, Naomi. the story is, of course, Naomi um, and her husband and their children. There's a famine in Israel. They leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. In Moab, um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and her two sons marry Moabite women, but both the husbands die. In the end, she has, there are no children, there is no hope, and they return. They, she, and Naomi says, "I'm going back to Bethlehem." Uh, one of the daughter in laws stays in Moab, but Ruth refuses to stay. She's so intensely loyal to Naomi that she's go, she's prepared to give up all of her her people, her land, her gods, everything, leave and go to Israel to a land she doesn't know. That's the story of Ruth, intensely loyal and kind. So she's she's so intensely loyal and kind. She leaves behind everything and goes to Bethlehem. Um, Father Johann Rotten, who's a Catholic scholar talking about the types of Mary in the Old Testament, says both Ruth and Mary are active respondents to God in their life stations. As such, they represent their people Israel in its primordial covenant response on Sinai. Ruth anticipates the response: "All that the Lord has said, we will do and we will heed and do." So, when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the with the law, he read it out, and this is what the people of Israel responded: They said. All that the Lord has said, we will heed and do. So what he's saying is that Ruth is like that. She's responding in the same way, and so did Mary. Ruth says to Boaz, why should I, a foreigner, be favoured with your notice? And to Naomi, she says, I will do whatever you advise. Mary too has been looked upon with favour. Hail, favoured one, the Lord is with you. Mary affirms this in her own canticle. For she has looked for he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on, all generations call me blessed. Mary too, like Israel on Sinai, responds to God's calling saying, may it be done to me according to your word. Both women have been looked upon with favour and both respond to this affirmatively. Ruth is named among the mothers of Israel in the final verses of the book of Ruth. Finally, we come to Bathsheba. It may not be obvious at first how she prefigures Mary or what relation there is, because we always associate Bathsheba with David's sin. We think about what David did, and then we don't really think about further how, how Bathsheba plays her role in subsequent events. Um, but um, as the mother of Solomon, she intercedes with David at a very critical time when another of David's sons, Adonijah, tries to make himself the king of Israel. Nathan the prophet knows that Solomon is to be king and asks Bathsheba to intercede with David to have Solomon made king before Adonijah does Um, because if Adonijah becomes king first, he's going to kill everyone. He's going to kill all the rivals, which was a common thing to happen in the ancient world. So um, she does intercede and Solomon is made king. Now, when Solomon is enthroned, he has a throne set at his right hand for his mother Bathsheba. Um, and that office then is established of the Queen Mother. That office actually continues then through Israel, as long as it exists, through Judah, okay? It continues to exist as an office um, of the Queen Mother, who had a lot of influence and power, sometimes not good influence, but in this case, um, that's the office that was established. And we see this clearly in Mary. She sits at the right hand of Christ enthroned. So, oh, sorry, I'm sitting around and people can't hear. Um, right, so, so, yeah, we see this, you know, very obviously with Mary, that this, this prefigures the, the Queen Mother sitting at the right hand of Christ. And incidentally, this also continues into the Byzantine Empire. Queen Mothers play a, play a very important role in the Byzantine Empire. Think of um, St. Helena and Constantine. Think then later on in the iconoclast controversy where a couple of, and I forget their names, a couple of queen mothers were very influential in uh, returning the, the church to orthodoxy. So this was a, you know, an important office. And we can see here that it's prefiguring or, or is based on uh, Mary. So I think that today's gospel is primarily about Jesus, but it's also about Mary. It's also about you know, all of those who prefigured them and all those ancestors of Christ who showed us various aspects of who it is that will come to us in just a few days' time and his most pure mother, the Theotokos, and not despite their sins, but in the midst of their brokenness and sin, we see all of these things happening, all of these things playing out. Father Philip Lamasters writes, "'With all our sins and brokenness, we are unworthy and unlikely members of such a glorious family. Like those who prepared for the coming of Christ and those who have served him since,' We're also scandalous sinners, even if we've learned how to hide the shocking details from other people. Perhaps that is why the Son of God chose a family full of imperfect people who often got it so wrong. Perhaps that is why he was born in a miserable circumstances, unfit for any human being, much less the Messiah. Perhaps that's why the Old and New Testaments don't even try to conceal the sins of both the Jews and the early Christians. So as we approach the birth of Christ, let's remember that just as he came from a family with plenty of scandalous sinners, he is coming to save us, who are also scandalous sinners. And also remember that even as we look at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and we could look at them and see only scandal if that's what we wanted to see. But if we look in the light of the resurrection of Christ and lift the veil, we see restored justice, extraordinary faith, profound obedience, and faithful intercession. So let us, in the same way, see each other in this light, looking past the obvious failings and faults that we all have, to see that which is being born in us through Christ and his church, and join with all these great ancestors of Christ and with all the saints and joyfully celebrate his incarnation.